Live from the J.C. Newman Cigar Studio in Boston, Massachusetts, welcome to the Smokin' Tobacco Show with your hosts, Matt Tobacco and Smokin' Nicole. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Smokin' Tobacco Show. My name is Matt Tobacco from SmokinTobacco.com, and I'm joined once again by my beautiful wife, Smokin' Nicole. And this week, we have a very big show for you guys. We have the one and only Steve Saka. Steve, welcome to the Smokin' Tobacco Show. By the way, you guys have some great bump-in music. I can't take really any credit good. for that. It's all John Carney. He 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 did DJ that. DJ Carney. Yeah, yeah, John Carney made. So Carney actually made the video with the smoke, and picked out all the music. That was all him. Really? Yeah. But <laughs> in his spare time, because he's got nothing better to do, he's a <laughs> hell of a nice guy. What? You didn't pay him or anything? I mean, we help each other out in multiple ways. You know, we uh, we do trade offs and stuff. And <laughs> that sounds kind of wrong, but okay. no, not in any kind of <laughs> yeah, weird way. Should I be worried? No. <laughs> no, it's just you know, there's certain things you shouldn't say. I mean, uh, like you know, there's usually an exchange of cigars. Is that what we're talking about here, Matt? I'm just trying to. It's okay. I mean, look, I don't judge. I, I just... was. I was more so just kind of cover my ass with the FDA because I didn't want to tell everyone that I get cigars from John from time to time. So sometimes that that pays for certain well, services, actually, and then I send some back, and then I send some back. So you know, it, but, but, you're, but you're media, so that would be considered uh, that would be considered okay. That's true. That's my that's my gray area. That's my loophole. <laughs> or as Coop would say, as only as only Coop as as Coop would say, I'm only here for the free samples, right? That's Coop's uh, motto. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's much cheaper to pay for your cigars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, welcome everyone to the show. Um, no, it's 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 great to have you on, Steve. It, it's really fun, and uh, I you know I wanted John to be on here tonight. I think he wanted to be too. He definitely had some questions that he wanted to ask you. Um, I don't oh, know how I don't know how friendly those questions would have been, but I think he has an event. Would have been tonight. horrific. Oh yeah, it would have been tough. Um, yeah. So he, he he's not here, so you don't have to you don't have to deal with that tonight. Um, All right, I, I, I can deal with John. Torpedo <laughs> me was on the brulee, but yeah, last lap is mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, uh, we're gonna start the show. We have a couple of things we got to do before we get too into it. First of all, uh, Steve, as the guest, what are you smoking tonight? I am smoking uh, Mikarita Black Saka. It's a great cigar. It's a great cigar. Yeah, you're going to need that cigar. I know you have this show. Then right after this, you have the U-Boat launch that you're doing later on tonight. So we also have to watch our time with you tonight because I don't want you to uh, have any delays for that. So that's an awesome cigar. We are going to both smoke, Nicole and myself, we're going to smoke the Bewitched, uh, which, you can, which, you, which you can get at twoguyscigars.com. A box of seven will set you back $124.99 or a single cigar for $19.99. And that's, as once again, as always, from our friends at the number two, guyscigars.com. And we're going to cut and light our cigars with our Cigar Blondie accessories, cutter and lighter, which Nicole just filmed a fantastic little review for. And you guys will have to check that out later once we get it up online. We're going to edit it and all that stuff first. But go and check them out at Cigar Blondie accessories. Com. I cheated and already let mine, but I know it's okay. Why, well, why cigar blondie? Is it like a blonde chick or a dude that owns cigar blondie? It's she um, is blonde. It's uh, do you know Leo from Nova Cigars? It's her. I've met, but I don't really know. How about that? 
Yeah, it, the 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 woman who's the CEO of Nova Cigars started her own accessories brand, and it's hers. And she and goes her, by Cigar Blondie yeah. on social media. That's her. So tag. she named it Cigar Blondie Accessories. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay, I know who we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah, really sweet. She's really cool. Um, you know, it's funny we talk about two guys cigars. Um, that's a special shop for you. I mean, I know as a as a manufacturer, now all the shops you sell your products to are special. But um, you've known Dave for a long time. And you're from the same. We're, we're both from New England. Um, yeah, and- I think uh, I think I've been shopping with two guys since, gosh, nineteen ninety one ish, ninety two. Wow. I mean, oh, wow. first time I went in his store was when he was in that really small location in East Boston, and uh, yeah, I've spent a lot of money over the years with Dave. Yeah, he, he's he's a. I don't think he's caught up with me yet, so I think it's still I'm still on the negative side of that equation. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I gave I gave Dave a lot, a lot of money. Yeah, I mean he he's one of the best, you know, that in the game to do it. He's been around a long time, you know, uh, since what like eighties was it late eighties like eighty seven or something? When did he first start? Something like that. I don't even know. I'd have to go by what year anniversary of that and start doing the math and. That's how I figure out how old I am. So, I But he's know. been around a long time. I mean, he started out a long time ago. He, he's built quite the business. And um, I know, they, you know that's been, that was a store for you as a customer. And now here yeah. you are in the business, and now you're selling cigars to him. So um, it's crazy the way these things work out. Before, I mean, before you were in the tobacco business, you were in the computer business. Is that correct? Um, I own, well, I was enlisted in the Navy. And when I got in the Navy, um, I had a control engineering firm. We uh, very exciting we did automation systems and primarily process control oriented factories and plants yeah we were quite 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 stimulated yeah very interesting stuff <laughs> yeah then you get of course then you get into the tobacco business you work for drew estate um you know you're blending cigars our cigar before that and and before that i was already kind of doing what you guys do now but uh back in the the beginning days when there was like no video and no audio and it took like 30 minutes to download a porn pic (laughs) bar by bar by bar to get this like really fuzzy terrible picture yeah yeah yeah, you 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 guys have no idea how spoiled you are with your streaming and (laughs) your order food and all these great things yeah it's crazy we uh we got it made now I guess um uh, yeah because you were you were part of some of the early cigar forums like wait like going way back to the beginning if I remember correctly yeah. before before there were actually web based forums uh I participated in something that's kind of similar to Reddit today it was called Usenet okay um, and it was really just um I mean look it was primarily Usenet was a really weird place it was kind of like the wild west of the internet. It was all sorts of pirated stuff going on. There was all sorts of like, you know, it was kind of like a traffic portal for human trafficking and odd porn. But there was also a lot of these really little niche groups. You know, if you were really into knitters, you would get a knitting group together. Or if you were really into collecting uh, dwarf statues, there'd be a group to collect dwarf statues. So it was kind of the Facebook group of the time, but you had to be kind of technically savvy it wasn't user friendly. So you really had to know how to get to it, find it, use the applications. It was it was a, it was a lot different back then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it almost kind of sounds like a little bit of the dark web there. Um 
Um, yeah, I mean, by today's standards, I think it's probably close to that, really. Mm. I mean, look, it's, I don't even know if it's in existence. I mean, sure it is, right? Nothing ever dies on the internet. Um, but uh, it's just such an outmoded way of communicating that uh, it just nobody uses it anymore that I'm aware of. But I'm, I'm ignorant of it, so I could be completely wrong. Maybe there's a flourishing internet world out there that I'm just completely oblivious to. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's probably like a handful or a dozen people who actually still use it, and it's just them. No, they didn't want to make the joke. They're probably happier without all the jokers around. I mean, look, on the first cigar, I don't even know the third list. Honestly, it was a really small group, and it just kind of blossomed from there. And by the time I left it, there were thousands of people in it. Yeah. And now, how do you? At what point did you transition from kind of being like just like a hardcore cigar geek, really into it, kind of dabbling with stuff online, and then you kind of be like, you know what, I'm gonna just go right into the business. At what, like what point did um, you? Just... I, never, I never intended going in the business. The way I got in the business was uh, one of the persons that I had met was Lou Rothman. I had met everybody because when I started, there were none of you guys. Right. I was it. Nobody talking to cigar manufacturers or visiting factories. So I pretty much knew all the principal players back starting in the early nineties. And, um, and one of those guys that I had met along the way was Lou Rothman. And Lou wanted me to write a book about cigars and tobacco. And while we were having a conversation about that, he offered me a job to work at uh, JR cigar uh, and uh, Santa Clara. Uh, for an obscene amount of money. Uh, that's when I got the cigar business. So I was first from that. Oh. That would have started in 1999. Sorry, your, your, your connection was a little fuzzy there, but I, I kind of made most of that out. Um, so in 1999, you go to work at JR Cigar. And then from there, where do you go after JR? Um, after JR, well, they got bought out by Alex USA, and I, uh, I stayed. I don't be on stay, and uh, so I was on a non-compete for two years. And about a year into that is when uh, Jonathan and Marvin from D come on board. So um, it would be oh summer of two thousand five. Yeah, it was the summer of 2005. Summer 2005, you I go joined to DE. Yeah, I go to DE to become the president of the company at Drew Estate. Okay. And then I was with Drew Estate until, um, I mean, publicly, we didn't announce it until the summer of 2013, but it was really until February of 2013 when I actually really uh, ended up uh, deciding to leave the company. Yeah. And that's when you, and you left DE to start Dunbarton. Tobacco and Trust, correct? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I knew I was going to do something. Okay. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I was just ready to leave. You know, it just uh, great company, but you know, the owners wanted to go a different direction than I wanted to go, and uh, it was becoming too taxing because uh, my wife didn't like Miami, so she moved back to New England. So I had factory operations in Esteli. We had corporate headquarters in Miami, and then my wife lived in New Hampshire. And I tried it for a year and a half, and it just 
as the months kept going, I was seeing my wife less and less and less. And I finally got to the point like, guys, this just isn't working for me. Yeah. You got to have that work-life balance. I mean, you gotta, you gotta have time with your wife and at home and stuff and you can't. Yeah. Let me say this since leaving Drew state, I haven't established that either. So I can't say it's <laughs> I'm here more often. That part's true, but uh, no work-life balance. That's never been in the cards. Well, you've been really bad at that. You just got back from, from Europe. You went over for inter tobacco in Dortmund, but along the way, um, you, you you went and visited some other places too. You went to Switzerland too, right? Yeah, I went to. I haven't taken a legit vacation in like three years, so I promised Cindy that we would spend an extra look. It costs so much to fly to Europe now; it almost just seems wasteful to go there and not see something, right? Other than going to the trade show, right? Because it's so absurd. The other thing too is it's such a pain, you know, how long it takes to get there and how long to get back. So we decided, look, neither of us had been to Switzerland. So we decided to tack on a week in Switzerland and just kind of tool around a little. What did you find? What was like the, the highlight of being in Switzerland that you experienced or discovered there? I think that the thing, look, we were in that fairy tale part of Switzerland. We were in the Bernese Oberland. I mean, that's kind of where the whole Heidi story that's where dragons and castles and I mean, it's just the the scenery is just it's indescribable as to how beautiful it really is. So I think more than anything, it was just, you know, just being someplace that was just so it was literally it was a postcard 360 almost every place we were. Wow. You know, and that's, and that's you know, that's kind of cool. Now, let me say this. If you go, don't be worried about cash because it cost a fortune. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing cheap in Switzerland. Um, but if you can just set that aside and not think about the fact that you just paid 100 euros or 100 francs for two pizzas, you're okay, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, you had been posting photos and everything, you know, during your trip. We saw that you had found a tobacco farm out yeah. there. What was that? Were they actually making cigars there or... No, no, no. He was uh, he was growing it for uh, for him to cure to use in his pipe. Oh, nice. Yeah, in his own words, bear with me. Yeah, These yeah. are not my words. These were his words that his Nazi Swiss government taxed too much on tobacco, so he had to grow his own. Those were his words, not my words. Okay, just let's be clear about that. <laughs> okay, that's a fair statement. Though. Fair statement. Fair <laughs> statement. So he, uh, so yeah, so he decided he was going to grow his own tobacco. So he grows his own tobacco for his own consumption. Yeah. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. yeah, it was like it was like literally, I don't know, a quarter of an acre maybe. I mean, it was a little tiny. He had a little tiny corn plot next to it, which is terrible. You should never plant corn next to tobacco, but that's a separate issue. Um, and uh, but yeah, just his own little personal thing. So were you like driving by and you saw this and then you were like, oh, is that, that's a tobacco oh, farm? Oh, no, no, no. My wife made me uh, walk every fucking place, man. Yeah. It's, a, <laughs> it's a country of elevation shifts. Yeah. We were, we, we were, we were doing a walkabout. <laughs> <laughs> and you just discovered yeah. this little which tobacco plot. You're more, like, huh. Which is really more about me just trying to not have a heart attack. But yeah. So Slow and steady. So anytime, so anytime I could find anything to stop and look at, that's what I did. There was a lot, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, oh, you got to see this. Isn't this beautiful? Let's take a moment and take it in. Cause when will we ever see this again? 
when yeah. really what I was doing was just. <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that's still pretty cool, though. Stumble upon a tobacco plot and farm and just be like, huh, that's peculiar. What's going on over here? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's funny. You mentioned, you know, growing corn next to the tobacco not being a good. And now a lot of manufacturers and growers, I should say, a lot of growers and people who home farms, they grow other things on the farm, whether it's in the off season or if it's stuff that's along parallel with the tobacco. Um, something we don't really talk a lot about, about, but I'm sure you can speak to. Um, what are what are some of the things that are, are good to grow, you know, in a tobacco field or, or, or part of a tobacco farm or whatever um, to, to really help? I know a lot of a lot of manufacturers do it. Some do citrus fruits, some do eucalyptus i've heard uh different things uh just in your opinion what, what do you think what what other things work in the soil i think the best thing is beans i mean beans just give you the best turning silage wise i mean it gives you the most nutrients it's very low impact on the land so you're getting a big net positive out of growing a bean crop and because of particularly where tobaccos are harvested um beans are a big part of the diet so it also works out in that way that you have the beans to share with your workers and whatnot. So I think beans by far are the number one thing that's grown. Now, you see most of them will grow some sort of edible bean. I'm seeing more soybean uh, because you get you get a benefit out of that. Um, but, you know, there are things that you don't grow. You, you don't want to ever grow any other uh, nightshade. You want to grow tomatoes. You know what I mean? Because those, you don't want to grow things that are of the same class. Right. So, but I mean, it's, uh, but I, I think beans is the number one thing that most people use as a, uh, I'm, I can't, I'm drawing a blank. What's the word for it? It's a rotational crop. Yeah. For, for now, I, I thought I heard, and I don't know how accurate or true this, and I don't even remember who it was, but I thought I heard that even some will grow coffee beans. On the farm. I don't know how that's possible. I mean, they can grow coffee beans, but coffee beans are typically grown at higher elevation. Coffee beans are not something that are, I mean, you want a crop that's a quick plant and a quick harvest and a, and a quick till under, and that's not coffee beans. So yeah. they may be growing coffee beans on, on their farms, but I don't believe that it has anything to do with the tobacco. It yeah. just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, and the other thing is, look, you just let the land go fallow. But typically, that used to be something you would have to do like once every three, four years, and then you would move cattle in on it. But that isn't as necessary today because the soil science has gotten so much better than it used to be. So, you know, we just have so much better nutrition. We have so much better way to, uh, you know, to monitor the soil and what it needs. And we have so many different... uh, fertilizers available to us that uh, you don't have to do it that way like you used to right yeah i mean it, it's you know we there's been a few other people that have, have come on and talked about you know like nick perdomo's gone on and and talked about you know the farm aspect and jose blanco's been on and it, it is interesting to have those conversations with the different things that go on and just the the growing side you know, just in the farm and then the soil and the seed and all that before you even get to aging, fermenting, rolling and any of that. Um, oh, yeah. The whole it's, it's, an entirely, it's an entirely different world. And I, and I don't I don't pretend to be a, an agronomist. I mean, uh, it's a it's it's a 
it's like anything. It's a, it's a skill set. You know, it's a craft of its own. Um, I, I just know enough to be dangerous. Yeah. So when you're so when you're working on a new cigar or a new blender, you want to work with a certain kind of tobacco. You, how involved are you in the growing side of it? Are you more or less like, kind of like this is what I'm looking for, and then when it's when it's been harvested and it's ready, you kind of take it from there. Well, that would be true with most things. I mean, there's a few oddball things like, I guess some special tobaccos grown for me in Pueblo and Nueva. So those I have more contact directly with the farmer. Um, we have the San Andreas Incompromiso crop. That's something where um, I'm in contact with that farmer. Um, I'm, you know, I'm buying broadleaf in the valley direct, so they don't need my help to grow it. But uh, I have more contact with that farmer, those farmers actually. Um, so it really depends on the tobacco. Um, you know, the the particularly the specialty items like the like the Honduran seed that we you know that we reprised for the Mikirita Black. But in the end, I'm not the farmer. I'm I'm the guy that shows up and looks and stares and nods and tends he knows what I'm doing and you know follows a few. Yeah, <laughs> I know the basics, but the, the benefit of the, the more time you spend with the people that actually do it, the more you learn. You learn something almost every time, you know. And and the other thing that's rather odd is you know, there's very it's getting better. It was much more segmented. It was much more, we do it this way because our father did it this way and our grandfather did it this way. Over the years, um, you know, you have a new generation of farmers that uh, they're much more scientific than they used to be. Uh, so that So you're starting to see a lot of the things get more refined and more specific. Um, you know, because look, there's, you go to the University of North Carolina and they have a huge ag program for tobacco, but it focuses primarily on, you know, brights and burleys and the tobaccos we grow here in the United States. And even though we grow Connecticut shade and Connecticut broadleaf and Pennsylvania seed leaf here and a few other things with Comstock and whatnot, um, there isn't much focus on the air cured black negra tobaccos. It's just really not part of it. Uh, so most of the education that was formal was coming out of uh, Cuba because they do have an ag program there at the experimental station. And now we also have an ag program that is uh, in Central America in Nicaragua that has some focus on tobacco. So you're seeing more uh, young kids, agronomists go through that program. And the other thing what's really kind of still odd about our business is um, the Dutch are still very heavily involved in the uh, the growing, the cultivation, and the brokering of tobacco. I mean, here we are. I mean, I mean, they really were at the forefront of it in the 16 and 1700s, and here we are, some four to five hundred years later, and these guys have uh, they're still they're still intimately involved. Uh, but you guys never you never meet any of those Dutchies, uh, but they're they're around. They haven't died out yet. So to speak, oh. yeah. Oh, it's, again, it's, uh, it's uh, <laughs> part of what they do, right? Yeah, and it's it's interesting to watch. I mean, we we've only been, you know, involved with cigars for you know, I mean, me me, me more than her. I mean, you know, five six years back now. I mean, uh, and I and I take in everything I can, you know, but it's still it's very small. I mean, you have these conversations with people like you know yourself or others who've 
doing this a long time, but and you listen to the stuff that they talk about and whether they explain something and they're telling you a story, it, you, you do pick up how things do change, but more often than not, the more they change, they stay the same, so to speak. Uh, is kind of what I pick up a lot of times in conversations with people like, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this. But at the end of the day, it kind of all comes full circle in the end. Um, and it, it's just interesting. And everyone has their everyone has their way. And it, you mentioned it before. It's like, well, this is how my father did it. My grandfather did it. And as much as it's, it's that very traditional, that family business, you know, which I think is the heart of what this business really is. Um, as much as people like to do changes and make things change, they do it on a smaller scale. But the the, the grander vision and the grander part of that trade of working with tobacco it really never changes completely it, some of it really ultimately stays the same uh but and again i think that's what makes it special though um just keeping the heritage alive and and keeping the consistency um now let me ask you another question so you mentioned this before we weren't really live yet but i think it's something that most people know about you um you you tend to change your mind a lot and um you've been known to work on blends over and over and over again. How do you, uh, is, is that just from, are you like, would you just call yourself a perfectionist or are you just, d does your opinion always change on something or your palate always change? It's not perfectionist. It's that I'm just internally dissatisfied with everything. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm just never happy. So you're just a hard person to please. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> are those your words or are those maybe Cindy's words? I think that's everyone's word. <laughs> I don't think those are unique. Um, but, you know, the thing is, I understand it, and the people I work with it know it. And where where it's a little different is um, most people that are a pain in the ass are not willing to. So, like, I'm doing something right now. I've been trying to get a cutter made forever. Okay. Okay. A simple, a simple cutter, but I. And I have probably gone through like four different people trying to do the prototyping on this thing for well over four years now. And I probably spent, I don't know, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars in prototyping costs, maybe more. And and the way it works is I always tell them to be really picky. I may not buy anything if in the end I'm not satisfied, but I'm gonna pay you every step along the way. So I'm gonna keep asking you to do things and you're just gonna keep charging me for these things. And, and I think that's a little bit different. So I, I expect a lot, but I also don't expect people to not be paid for their time or their effort or their expenses. Like, like most factories, you know, when you're making sample blends, those are always gratis, right? Almost universally, those are free because they lead to bigger business. In my case, I pay for all the samples for the most part, because I make a lot of samples. I mean, I make samples in the thousands, you know, where most people are like, yeah, make me 10 of these and five of those. And, oh, let me make one bundle. Yeah, this is good to go. I'm, I'm not that guy. So I, I, I make a lot of cigars. I have to make a lot of cigars that ultimately end up in the trash. Um, but I, I like to, I like to have enough to really be sure. I like to have enough to see, you know, How's you know? Because it's what the problem when you're getting samples made is they're almost always made in a factory by one of the best pairs. Because universally, pairs, particularly the Boncheros, they don't like change. They they make the same blend day in day out in the same size, and so you need a pair that's much more flexible, much more capable. Hmm. And so almost universally, 
those sample cigars are almost always made by one of the absolute, if not the best pair in any given factory environment. And the thing is that doesn't give you a fair representation of what the cigars are going to be like, actually, when it comes time to put them in a box. You know what I mean? Because that one single pair, you can't have the unicorn pair roll, you know, 100,000 cigars a month. They're not doing that. You know what I mean? So you have to, you have to really get to, you have to see what the typical quality pair is going to do. And a lot of times you have to adjust some of the bunching. You have to adjust the recipe. You need to make it a little easier on them. So there's a lot of little things that I think a lot of people, I think a lot of brand owners don't really get that involved in, but they do make a measurable difference in the end in the product. And look, and making, making copious amount of samples is always the best way to go. But I don't expect the factory, I'd probably say like probably in the last year, probably made close to 5,000 sample cigars. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, yeah, it's a tremendous amount of cigars. And you can't expect a factory to do that for free. No, of course not. Uh, I mean, th th that tobacco's you know, it's money. I mean, you can't just... But I know exactly what you're saying. You know, a lot of factories, it's like, yeah, don't worry about the samples. We'll get something made or whatever. But, you know, you make so many samples. It's like, all right, <laughs> we can't give all this away. Um, but the thing is, I don't ask... They don't ask me... I tell them going into it that this is the way it's going to work. You know so what I mean? Is this where you being a pain in the ass and self-aware of that kind of comes around like, hey, listen, I'm going to have a lot of samples made, so I am going to pay for all these because I know I'm going to be changing my mind every five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, at least I mean, at least is that, you know. Um, here's the funny part. Typically, once I get to the point of a decision, I'm on the decision. You know what I mean? But, but there are things that I come back to and I look at, like, you know, I made the first Sober Mesa blend. A year later, I tweaked it and added two sizes with the tweak blend. You know, I make, uh, you know, I when I made Sin Compromiso, uh, one of the sizes was disappointing to me in the end. I was not happy with the Intrepido. So I went back and redid that blend a year later. You know, now I don't know whether the average, I, I don't think most people noticed because no one ever said, oh my God, it's totally different. But I noticed, you know what I mean? Right. Because I was kind of like, eh, this cigar shouldn't be in a box. It's just, it's not of a caliber blend wise of the other ones in the line. So, but a lot of times it, you know, you need time in order to get to that point. You need to, you know, what's it taste like six months, a year down the road? You know, you feel about it a certain way today, but then, you know, given hindsight and experience and smoking, you know, hundreds more, you go, oh, okay, I, I could have done this a little different. I could have done this a little better. So I'm, I'm not um, I'm not reluctant to fix things that I consider to be mistakes of mine. Now, when you're coming out with a new line, you go through all your thousands of test blends and your samples and all of that, and you, you kind of get to a point where you're like, all right, I think, I think this is where I want to enter production. How many times have you gotten to that point and then you're just like, and the rollers are already making them. You're you're in production. You're you're starting to you know, make cigars, roll them, get them in the aging room, and like, uh, and, then like the last, and then you're like, and then you're like, I changed my in mind. In the again. last twenty years, maybe three times, where I've where I've thrown away a month's worth of production, hmm. you know, where I just came to the conclusion that 
it wasn't right. Look, the other thing you have to understand is it, it's not just a decision about a cigar, whether a cigar is good or bad. I, I make good cigars every Tuesday. The problem is you got to figure out where does it fit into the business? Where does it fit into the brand? How's the retailer going to represent it? What space is it going to grab on the shelf? What am I competing with? And am I competing with someone else or am I competing with myself? Because a lot of times, a lot of brands are competing with themselves. They do it all the time. They, they create so much new stuff on the churn and burn that they're really just sucking up the shelf space they already had just with something new. And a lot of the stuff that gets thrown out there, and this is in my opinion, and I know everybody says cigars are the best they've ever been. And that probably is universally true. The quality of the cigars today are way better than they were two, three decades ago. That's definitely true. But I think there's just an awful lot of mediocrity. Good cigars, decent cigars, they smoke fine. Yeah, but I, there's, it's not that many really exceptional cigars, in my opinion, that really end up you know, in the marketplace. You know, uh, you bring up an interesting point. You know, when you talk about, you know, when you're making a cigar, you're bringing a cigar to market, there's the competition aspect of it, 100%. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, we have brand owners on the show, and we'll ask the question from time to time, like, well, you know, like, what cigars other than your own? And it's always like, oh, I only smoke my own shit. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's bullshit, but okay. When you're talking about looking at – Some of it's true and some of it isn't true. Look, first off, you got to buy other people's cigars, so you get cheap, right? And you're kind of like, hey. And the other thing is you have so much of your own stuff that you have to smoke. You know, so that's part of the problem too. I mean, when you're making thousands of samples and on top of that, you got to smoke, but there's sizes. Like I don't personally like Robustos. Me either. I, I don't like, I don't like to smoke them. They're too short for me. Yeah. Okay. There's just no point in it, but look, Robustos are obviously one of the number one sellers that they're, they're, they're number two behind Toros. So I have to continuously smoke all the Robustos out of all the lines that are currently in production just to make sure they stay steady. So there's a lot of smoking that you end up having to do for work that isn't the same as someone at the end of the day saying, Hey, I want to enjoy a good cigar and relax and kick back and have my beer, you know? So, um, I think there are, I think there are. And the other thing too, you have to take in consideration is I don't think, I think that Nick Perdomo believes in his heart that his cigars are the absolute best. And I think George Padron believes that. And I think that Carlito Fuente believes that because look, you're, you're the chef. You're getting to make the recipe the way you want the recipe to be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you tend to be more satisfied with your own cigars than other people's cigars, um, just because they're made to your, to your palate. And so I think there's some truth to that at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I smoke other stuff, but most of the other stuff I smoke, is because someone has given it to me, someone has really recommended it, or it's something that I see being launched that piques my interest. I'm like, oh, I want to try that. So there's a bit of it, but there's not as much as there used to be for me. It's, a, it, it's hard to squeeze it all in. I try my best typically to try to smoke one other company cigar every day. And it's not so much for surveying the competition. Because look, we're all it's all brown and round. There's tons of competitors. It's more just because I'm still a cigar geek and I'm curious. And so I, I tend to try to smoke. It's typically my second cigar of the day because I want my first cigar of the day to be good. So I don't want to waste that experience on something that I probably am not going to like. 
And, and a lot of those cigars I like for the second cigar of the day, if I don't like them right off the bat, they'll get a half an inch, an inch at most, and I'll put them down and I'll go to the next thing that I want to smoke. But every once in a while, I'll get something. Or sometimes I'll just go back to, uh, look, I, every once in a while I go, huh, I want a Padron 1926. Oh, I want a Fuente Hemingway in Cameroon. I don't make anything in Cameroon. Sometimes I want a Cameroon cigar. Um, Tatuaje Black. Um, I particularly like that lot. He calls it a Petit Lancero, but it's more like a Lonsdale. I really like that cigar. So I'll occasionally smoke that. But occasionally smoke one Ahoya cigar. So I do, I do smoke other stuff. But yeah, probably 90 to 95% of what I'm smoking. And we're not talking about cutting and lighting and tasting, but actually trying to smoke through the whole cigar. It's primarily my own crap. Well, because I was going to say, you know, the thing that would be interesting to me is you mentioned, you know, thinking about like when you make a cigar, well, who am I competing with? I mean, other manufacturers, you know, the thing that I would always curious, like, well, I mean, you're you're making your own cigars, but you also you, you must be smoking stuff that's similar to what you're trying to create. So, you know what you're going up against, you know, if Padron's got, you know, the, the 64 Maduro in a certain size and you have a cigar that you're trying to make and you think it might be similar to that, you know, you know, do you do you smoke those cigars and then go back and think like, you know, well, I'm trying to make something that's a little uh, less. I mean, the only thing is, so I had one blend, Todos Las Dias. I was trying to make a really strong cigar yeah. for that blend. And every time I get to the end of the blending rainbow, I just kept thinking it just tasted a lot like cigars that came from Papin Garcia's factory. And to me, that just didn't make, there was no point in it. You know what I mean? Um, sure. you know, why, why, why create something that's already there in the marketplace? Um, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, but look, it's only so many shades of brown and flavor. So ultimately you're always going to be stepping onto somebody. There's a lot of similarities between a lot of cigars. I think that certain genres, I think that, I think me, K Rita, if you're a Liga Pravada or a Tabernacle smoker, I think uh, Mickey Reed is a good option. I think if you're if you like Padron, I think Sin Compromiso is a good work for you. I mean, is it the same? It isn't the same, but I think that there's a lot of similar traits in what they give you as an experience that I think that there's crossover for. I mean, you know, if you like Davidoff White Label and Romeo and Julieta and Monte Cristo White and Ashton Classic, I think Brulee is better than all of those, but I think that it's in that same genre you know there's 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 really only if you really start to break things down there's really only like four to six like really core kind of flavor profiles right and everything from there is kind of an extension of that you know there's that mild creamy shade style cigar and there's the connecticut broadleaf heavy earthy dark and you got that real spicy peppery habano kind of lean racy style of smoke you know what i mean so right there's only certain basic pillars and then everything kind of stems from those yeah like you only you only have so many places you can really go um to begin with and then from there it kind of has to take its own journey yeah i think one of the things that i really focus on that i don't and i don't know why more people don't i really focus on a cigar always being smooth so even when it's a stronger blend I don't like a cigar that punishes the palate. I don't like one that is offensive. 
Now, look, there's a consumer that just loves to have their head blown off, right? And there's a place for those cigars. Look, I occasionally smoke it, whether it be a Aromacraft Neanderthal or La Florida Minicana, Double Lajara Chisel or something like that. But for me, those are cigars that I smoke infrequently and occasionally. They're more the condiment to my smoking experience. The vast majority of what I like is I always like cigars, whether they be mild or whether they be strong, to always be smooth. And the other thing that I always like is I always like for the smoke to have a really heavy, dense texture. I like to be able to almost chew the smoke. I like to feel the smoke. And I like for the finish to be long. I want it to, I don't want a cigar that doesn't leave a taste in my mouth. I want there to be an aftertaste. I want that to still linger. And the other thing too that's really important to me is uh, the retrohale. I, I always, even though I know very few consumers um, retrohale, when you make a cigar that retrohales well, it typically will taste better to the consumer that doesn't even retrohale. So that's something that I always really focus on. But uh, so smooth is uh, smooth is really big for me. And look, that cuts me out of a certain consumer, right? Um, I have a few cigars that I think aren't as smooth. Um, Unstolen Valor isn't as smooth. Um, uh, U-Boat tonight that we're launching, U-Boat is on the stronger end of my spectrum. I'm going to have a Muestra next year called Krakatoa. It's not a smooth style cigar. Um, so it's not that I don't deviate from it, but as a general rule of thumb, I'm always thinking about a cigar being smooth. And smoothness is not... I don't equate smoothness with strength. Some consumers do. I think you can have something really strong and it can still be smooth. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it, it's nice. It was nice of you to like break that down. Um, that talking about uh, how you blend and, and, and trying to blend with something smooth and stuff that's not. And just the whole, and I like the analogy that you made about, uh, we got to get to the news here in a second, but I just wanted to say this. You know, I like the, the analogy you made about even for consumers who don't retrohale, when you blend a cigar that retrohale is really nice, it'll still it'll still smoke well for the person who doesn't retrohale, um, and that and that's a really interesting point. And we don't really get into a lot of that stuff uh, with a lot of people on the show, so it, it's always nice to hear that that train of thought just on that whole process. Um, but I do I do want to take a quick pause. We have to do our news really quick. Uh, some interesting news, pretty exciting news actually. Uh, something a little different. Our news is once again brought to you by McAuliffe Cigars. If you head over to McAuliffeCigars.com today, you can sign up to become an official ambassador. We'll get your ambassador number and coin while you're at it. Head over to Facebook and join the McAuliffe Ambassador Facebook group. A hell of a time. A hell of a group of people. Great people. Only McAuliffe Cigars. Um, Drew Estate. How about that? Drew Estate announces a collaboration with Metallica and Blackened Whiskey. Uh, Steve, I'm sure you probably saw and heard about this in the news. If not, I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, so last night, Drew Estate held their latest Freestyle Live virtual event um, where they announced their next cigar in their portfolio is going to be the Blackened by Drew Estate. The cigar was created with James Hetfield of Metallica and Blackened Whiskey Master Distiller Rob Dietrich. Um, pretty, pretty cool concept. Uh, I, I was talking to – who was I talking to? Was it uh, – was it – was it Coop? I can't remember. I was talking to somebody. No, it wasn't Coop. Who was I talking to? I was talking to somebody, and they were saying, I think it's interesting because it's kind of like, um, I mean, there's been celebrity cigars that have come out. I mean, that's no secret. And, and 
projects similar to this. And the most recent one I think has been successful has been Espinosa did the collaboration with Guy Fieri um, with the uh, with the knuckle, knuckle sandwich. sandwich. Uh, and now you, you kind of you see Drew Estate kind of take that page like, okay, let's do a let's do a celebrity collaboration, and they kind of go with Metallica, which is kind of a very cool, interesting uh, group to collaborate and do a cigar with. And we had the cigar in the Freestyle Live kit. It was a good cigar. It was decent. I know you had it too. Yeah. Um, and I haven't had the blackened whiskey, so I can't really speak to that too much. Because I, as much as we love whiskey, I don't. That's one we don't think we haven't had. Uh, but th this is an interesting project, and it's it's really cool. And I think it's going to do really well for them. Um, and you can read more about that article and the sizes and everything that's available at SmokingTobacco.com. It's right there on the homepage. Um, so that's where I differ with you. I don't know if it will do well. You know what it does, though, Matt? Where's it true? makes everyone try it. That's true. So the cigar is going to get a very wide sampling, more than a lot of others, because, look, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to want to smoke that. So I think that and – that's, and that's often the goal when you launch something is you're hoping to get the widest possible exposure, the most people to try it, to find the ones that actually like it. Um, historically, most celebrity brands don't do well in our industry. Um, they tend right. to be short term. Um, I think the one that Eric's doing with Espinosa, I mean, that Espinosa is doing with Guy Fieri may stand a better chance because Guy Fieri is a really heavy cigar smoker and he's really into it. And so far he's been very active in promoting it. And that makes a huge difference. Um, but very, very, I, I really can't think of, it's very rare that you have a celebrity brand that does well. I mean, I think one of the most successful tie-ins was probably the CAO Sopranos from a commercial point of view. That's true. Um, when that one had a good run. But even that one, you know, they, they eventually die. Um, consumers don't tend to reward you long-term on these type of projects. And I, I don't mean that that won't be the case with Black. And look, all of us wish that we could do something, right? You wish you had this relationship with some celebrity that appeals to a wider audience that might get them more involved in your cigar. So I, I mean, you gotta be careful when you talk about it cause you don't want to seem sour grapeish about it. Right. But historically these projects rarely do well long-term. Are you surprised to see Drew Estate do something like this or no? No, no, not at all. Yeah. Look, it's look, uh, Drew Estate's a, uh, Drew Estate's a much different company than when I was there. Look, they, they're selling to a whole different group of consumers. They still sell to some of the same consumers, obviously, but they're 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 much more a mainstream brand appealing to a lot of different people, uh, a lot of cigar people that, you know, cigar guys that smoke one or two a week. You know what I mean? It's their, hey, it's their Saturday night ritual on their back deck kind of consumer. Listen, there's way more of those customers than they are of the type of guys that tend to smoke my cigars. A lot of my cigar guys are, they're heavy cigar consumers. You know, they're, they're smoking multiples a day oftentimes. Yeah. The different demographics of your, of your audience and who you're, who you're selling to, so to speak. It's true. Um, do you find that, do you find that it's, it's harder to find, new cigar smokers introduced to your brand that are maybe just different cigar smokers and you're trying to get them to 
to make that that change to a, a different portfolio, different palette, a kind I, of different. I've had this conversation multiple times with people. The greatest challenge you have as a small manufacturer, brand owner, is if you're lucky enough to become hot. Hmm. The question is, once you become hot, how do you start to bridge over to go more into that typical average cigar smoker who's just looking for a cigar that he enjoys, one he feels is a good value, um, one that he feels is consistent? Um, because in the end, most cigar smokers, they're never going to watch your podcast. They're never going to read Half Wheel. Um, they're never going to know who Dunbarton is or Steve Saka is. And honestly, they don't give a fuck. And, but that is literally the vast majority of the market. And that's why you see those brands that sustain the test of time and consistently make a high quality product are the brands that end up becoming those large, the Olivas and the Padrones and the Fuentes. I mean, this is not something that they achieved in a matter of a few years. This is something that they have cultivated over the course of decades. And, and that's, and that's where the biggest challenge comes as a company like ourselves, where like right now we're super hot, right? We're having a fantastic year and we've had a fantastic year every year since we've launched, except 2017 was a little rougher for me. Um, but, uh, there's only so many of those consumers. Okay. So ultimately you need it to spill over to a wider audience. And how do you reach that wider audience? Well, that's the challenge. It's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of hit it right on the head, but I mean, the, the majority are, you know, like, like you, like you were saying, it, there's, there's definitely a larger majority of people um, who are those not as, I, I feel like to me, the, the larger majority of cigar smokers out there from people I see and I talk to and whatever and and when I'm in shops and I see how people buy and stuff like that I feel like the vast majority is is that that buyer who comes in they smoke this they smoke maybe one brand maybe they smoke like five brands tops and that and that's it and that's what they smoke that's all they're gonna smoke very once in a while like all right I'll try this but they like to stick with that same box that they come in, they buy every month, every two months or three months, whatever it is, however long it takes them to go through it. And they, they kind of just stick in that circle and they don't really venture out of the circle too much. I feel like, you know, from our standpoint, you know, we're, we're, we're around people who are constantly smoking different things all the time. So to us, it doesn't seem like that, but I feel like the reality is there's a lot of cigar smokers out there and they don't do that. They don't smoke all these different cigars all the time that, that, that to them, it's like, no, I have what I like. This is what I want. This is what I'm going to buy. That's it. Um, I think as a general, and I don't know, maybe you can add more to this, Steve, but I think that in the last few years, I think you're seeing more people explore a little bit more. And I think with, there's a lot more stuff like this and a lot more media on social media. I mean, not everyone watches it, like you said, not everyone reads Half Wheel or whatever. But it's it's out there and it's on social media and everyone more or less is on social media. So you're constantly seeing like, these things pop yeah, up. Yeah, you're seeing it feeling like fa the large Facebook groups. You see the exposure. Yeah. And a lot of the consumers are not – they're not the type of consumer that is keyed in. But you also see it by the pictures they post. I mean I, I, I scroll through some of these cigar groups and I'm like, man, that guy thinks that's a great cigar. And it's really just an okay cigar. But yeah. it isn't my place to tell him that's an okay cigar. He's got to discover that on his own. But what ends up happening is the more time a person spends 
eventually they will find their way to something that is really perfect for them. And it just, it takes a long time. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a long, long effort. And I don't think that uh, most people can appreciate it. Uh, you know, how, how much time really it requires. And the problem is the consumer of today, nor does the market reward you for being consistent or for being brand loyal, because the easiest sale is the new sale. If I make a new brand, I go to the trade show, I'm selling 16,000 boxes of whatever I make new, right? That's right. a much easier deal than me trying to sell my 500 boxes of this every month and my 400 boxes of that, my 200 boxes of this size that isn't as popular. So just the way the market works, it really doesn't reward the manufacturer in the short term or even in the midterm to actually make a high quality, consistent product. Okay. You actually get rewarded by the market to just constantly churn and burn. And, and that's the way it works. And look, and retailers, they buy that way too. Um, you know, and I don't blame them. They retailers buy what their customers want. That's what they do. And what it takes is it takes those very, that's why there's very few brands that long-term ultimately break through to the other side. Because if you like, I don't like to name names. I think you guys are in the media, plus it's wrong for me to do so. But I think we can all think of brands that over the last decade that have been the it hot brand that seemed like it was just on a, a an interstellar, you know, rocket ship going to the moon that have really kind of slowed and fizzled and died. Right. And that's really kind of what normally does happen. It's very rare for companies to break through to the other side. It's it's a tough it's a tough gig. Yeah, no, I it, what what I found was interesting is you were on um Cigar Authority recently, and I think it was your last appearance on there, and you talked a lot about what it takes for a brand to, and what it costs really, and what you make as a as a yeah, new I did brand. That I did that program out of spite because they had a <laughs> episode that was supposed to talk about what it costs to get into the cigar business. Yeah, and he gave no numbers, he gave no cost, and I listened to the whole damn thing, thinking, okay, eventually he's giving some. I want some meat on this bone, and there was no meat at all. Yeah, and that's the reason why I ended up doing that program, you know. And it's uh, look, it's interesting uh, for anyone that's into the really uber geeky side of the business um, to really see what the numbers actually are. Uh, and this is the reason why you see a lot of brands they get to a certain size and then eventually they become like almost a big box brand. You know what I mean? Where uh, the brand ends up being primarily sold at discount at one of the big box places because. They'll capitalize on that, on that part where you were hot, and the amount of, uh, you know, the brand equity that you built in that short amount of time, and then they'll milk it, okay, and they'll and they'll use that forever. The problem is when you go down that path, there's no way to recover from it from a brand point of view. And look, it's not a bad path because the reality is, you make way more money. If I just said, hey, I'm just going to start making all of my cigars much cheaper. And I take the brand equity that I currently have and I let the big box guys run with it. I will make more money doing that. That's a much better short term uh, return for my dollar. Long term, it doesn't let you become a Davidoff. It doesn't let you become a Padron. It doesn't let you become a Fuente. You know, it doesn't let you become an Oliva. And I think that's the thing that most people don't realize. You know, when I started smoking cigars, Fuente was a brand that you bought because it was cheap. 
the bundle product. That's what Oliva was. Any retailer that's been in the business for a while remembers there were no high price Olivas. They were the they were the stand up bundle rack that they used to put in all the shops. That's what Oliva was. It was a cheap bundle cigar. Uh, Padrones. They weren't making high end cigars until the mid nineties. I mean, in God rest his soul, old man Padron will tell you he believes that the thing that set him apart was. He was making a cigar in Cayocho that was literally a penny cheaper than his competitor. He was making a simple Quesadore Fuma, and it was like 17 cents, and his competitors were like 18 or 19 cents. You know what I mean? And, and that's what differentiated him to get him out of the gate to go on to, you know, become, you know, now having the, you know, the whatever, the 40th and the 50th and the 80th and the hammers and all these other things. But right. that's a journey that, you know, starts, you know, in the sixties that you went through. I mean, we're talking about 50 years of history to get to the point that they're at now. For me, I'm too old. I'm not going to make it, you know? So I don't know how this is going to work out. I guess time will tell. (laughs) I I just don't have enough years left to do it. Yeah. Now there's a there's a few questions and comments in the in the chat. I want to kind of scroll back because I don't want to I don't want to miss these. A couple of people had a couple of questions. Um, well, here's one right here. Uh, question for Steve: Have you considered a Lancero in the Brulee or the Brulee Blue? Um, I've made samples of both, and they both suck. The blend does not translate well into the narrow ring gauges. Mitchell said, I don't think he's going to do Lanceros. He made the... Well, I would do a Lancero because Lanceros just suck separately. But do I try it? I try it. I'm curious. Have you tried the Lancero in all your blends just to see how it works? Is that like yeah. a regular thing? Yeah. I uh, try all the Vitolos. You try all... So so when you go through a new blend and you're and you're coming up with something, you say you go through all the Vitolas. I mean, there's there's a lot of Vitolas. Well, not all the Vitolas. I mean, you want to... <laughs> But I mean the the basic categories, you know, yeah, Lancero, Coronas, Robustos, Toros, you know, Torpedoes, Double Coronas, Gordos, you know, some variations in between certain ones, a Cuban Corona Gordo, which is five and five eighths by forty six. I, I pretty much do all of the blends in about twelve different sizes as kind of a baseline that kind of covers the spectrum to kind of get a sense of where it's at, where it works better. How much tweaking is going to be necessary to make it work in a smaller size or in a larger size? Some blends don't work well in a small size, and some blends don't work well in a large size. You notice I have 7x64s in Mike Rita and Mike Rita Tricky Charaka. I don't have a 7x64 in any of my other products because I just don't think it translates well in that size. That blend works in those sizes. Just the same way as I don't, I don't have a small narrow ring gauge sober mesa brulee. I haven't come up with a small brulee that I didn't feel. Every time I make it smaller, the extra combustion temperature because of the narrow ring gauge, it just makes it a little bitter and a little acrid and a little sharp. And and part of the way I get around that is with the sober mesa brulee blue by having to age it an extra year. Okay, so I I have, but I can't just make petite Coronas and Coronas and charge those kind of prices and sit them on, sit on them for a whole year. You know what I mean? So I also have to think from a a business point of view, what makes the most sense. So certain blends translate better than other blends, but the now leave me the hell alone blend, 
it sucks if it isn't a Lancero. I mean, hmm. the blend was just to be a Lancero from jump. That's what it was destined to be from the beginning. Um, but that blend, it doesn't do well in larger formats at all. Yeah, that's interesting. And someone actually had asked a question for Steve. What is your favorite Vitola? Um, my favorite Vitola. I'm boring. I smoke a lot of just plain old 6x52s. But probably my favorite is 6x48. And you see that in a lot of my lines. I make a lot of what I would consider to be a short, skinny Churchill, or I call it a thick Lonsdale. 6x48 for me is a size that uh, I really, really like. So uh, 5 and 5 eighths by 46, 6x48. Those are probably my personal favorites. And I smoke more Toros than anything else. Um, look, I depending on the blend, I, I love the Saka Kana 7x54. I think the blend just really, really works. This blend in this size is a really good, good blend, you know. Someone had also asked, is the Krakatoa going to be a limited release? Or is that going to be a Krakatoa standard? will be like all the other Muestras. It'll, it'll get launched. Um, it'll be limited in the beginning because the way all Muestras work is we take pre-orders. And then I typically make about, I typically make about enough product to release about 500 additional boxes every month after the initial launch. So we'll do an initial launch. We'll typically sell about 5,000 boxes on the initial launch. And then I'll sell about another 500 a month. And then depending on how popular it is, it'll then determine whether I increase the production or I decrease the production to stay in line. Recently, I have found that, like with the Lancero, the numbers were fine. Um, Naka Tamale, they were too low um unstolen valor way too low um it's like i still haven't caught up on unstolen valor um and i'm imagining bewitched is also bewitched has become really that one's really selling far more but also it's part of my it's my how much risk am i willing to take you know what i mean you you make something you have no idea how it's going to do it's a very expensive product um Unlike most companies that when they make mistakes like that, they just discount it really cheap. I'm unwilling to do that. I'd rather just light it on fire than give away stuff. Right. Um, so I have to be pragmatic. I, I, I never, the only thing that I intentionally limit is unicorns and that's just because they're a pain in the ass and I just don't want to, because I hand sort all that tobacco myself. But with everything else, I've always said this, as much as the market will consume, I'm willing to make as long as I can, as long as I have the tobacco and I have the capacity and I can make it the same quality and consistency. It's, it's my job to get cigars made and to put them in boxes so consumers can buy them. So I don't intentionally limit anything. But what ends up happening is the market sometimes just consumes way more than what you, you were anticipating. And as a small company with no investors, it's all my own money. There's a lot of risk involved. So I, I don't want to make 10,000 boxes of Bewitched out of the gate to find out that, oh, the first 5,000 boxes went out there and people think they suck. And then now what do I do with the other 5,000 boxes of this cigar? This is, this is not little money. So I have to be very judicious about it. And the other benefit to being that way is it also means that you don't have a lot of starting and stopping. It lets you make a product 
and keep it going all the time consistently. And it lets you kind of allow the organic sales to grow the product, which in the end is a, the more stable that you can be on the production end of things, overall, the better quality of cigar that's going to end up ultimately in the box of the consumer. So yeah, there's a lot of things that I probably miss out on a lot of short-term dollars for, but at the same time, uh, Muestra is a perfect example. When I initially launched the Muestra line, my intent was that every year I was going to launch a new Muestra as a limited, and then it was going to go away to be replaced by the one next year. Well, I'm still selling all the Muestras that I made from the beginning. There's Exclusivo, and there's Knockin' Tamale, and there's Now Leave Me the Hell Alone, and there's Unstolen Valor, and now they're Bewitched. So the fact that these limiteds continue going, and that's the reason why I never used the term limited edition. I always use the term limited production because I don't want to box myself in and, you know, say, oh, well, I'm never going to make any more of that because that's just stupid. If it's a good cigar and people like it, then, yeah, I'm supposed to make more. That's what you're supposed to do. Right. Do you think that there's too many of those limited editions, and I use the air quotes on that, out there on the market today versus Look, doing was... a limited production like you just kind of explained? Look, it's not my position to judge other people's businesses. I mean, I, I have I can't answer that question. I just know that here's what I do know. I know that when I see the companies that get on that constant limited edition train, they eventually run out of steam. I mean, we can all think of brands that got incredibly hot based on their limited editions. But ultimately, once you get to the, you know, the 30th limited, every time you make a cigar, there's going to be someone that likes it and someone that dislikes it, no matter what it is. And you only get so many bites at the apple with a consumer. So there are brands out there that today are probably making some of the best cigars they've ever made. But we as consumers have already dismissed it, that their products aren't for us. You know what I mean? Right. So you got to be really, really careful to not burn that out. You know, U-boats are a perfect example. We could sell four times as many U-boats as what we're going to sell tonight. There's enough. But at the same time, it's a very short-term kind of philosophy. I would rather just make more U-boats every single year grow it a little every year, let it grow on its own, let it become what it becomes and, and go from there. I mean, look, red meat lovers started off with, you know, 510 count bundles. And now it's to the point that it almost, uh, I, I can see red meat lovers be actually becoming a whole brand potentially just by um, itself. Actually. Yeah. Because there's enough, there's enough demand for the product. There's enough consumers that have tried it and said, wow, they really like the cigar. Yeah, I know recently you had done, this is one that's in our backyard as well, is Federal. You did the, the cigar for the 100th anniversary for Federal, um, right. which was interesting. And I remember you, you made a post about it saying, and, and and please just correct me if I'm wrong. But I remember you I thought you had said something along the lines of, this is why I don't like to do store exclusives or something or something along those lines. Or something yeah, like that. I, I don't want to drag it all up, but it was a project I didn't really want to do. I ended up agreeing to that went a little bit awry. Luckily, cigars were really good and there weren't very many of them. So it was a non-issue long term. Um, it's a good blend, the Federal 100. I think if you like, uh, it has a lot of similarities, in my opinion, to the Sin Compromiso, uh, but a, a bit stronger. Um, 
so it's a different blend, but I, I think for the the sin comp guy that wants a little more oomph, a little more pep, uh, which is kind of what the Paladin is in a way, but a different blend in itself. Uh, but yeah, look, there are certain things like, look, I live in New Hampshire. I'm friends with all the retailers. You're having a hundredth anniversary. It's very hard to say no. Oh yeah, absolutely. When someone, when someone asks you to make a cigar, you know, to celebrate their hundredth anniversary, it, it's it's hard to say no to that. Oh, absolutely. I I was more, and I I didn't mean to really like single them out as an example. I meant more or less, kind of like what you were talking about with like limited editions. Do you find that those those store exclusives that are like one offs? Is that would you kind of count that in that's in that same category of like doing something just one time and then. Well, that's what you would hope would happen, but that never seems to be what happens. I mean, look, I'm still making Red Meat Lovers, and I'm still making, I mean, this is the third iteration release of U-Boat, and I've made Frog Juice multiple times, and... Uh, Don Derma? I mean, well, Don Derma, Don, Don Derma like five or six times at this point. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I mean, you always think it's going to be a one-time gig, um, but you're happy that it isn't, too, because... The thing with so many of these products that get made as store exclusives are they're not typically really unique. They're typically just taking something you do existing and giving it a cute name and a different band and maybe you make it a different size or you flop a wrapper on it, but I don't approach them that way. I, I approach them as like dedicated individual projects that deserve a unique blend. And the reason why I do that is I know that the consumer that's going to go out of his way to buy a box of U-Boats tonight is going to probably be one of my most loyal customers that really likes Martin Tobacco and Trust. And they deserve something different than me just making a different size of me, Rita, and charging them more money with a new name on it. You know what I mean? Right. They deserve a different experience. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the limiteds end up ultimately failing as a long-term strategy because I don't think most people put the time and effort into them and they look at it as a way to make money and you don't make money if you do it correctly. The whole value in all of the limited production stuff is in the marketing value is where the value is. So if you're looking to make a lot of money on 500 boxes of something, you're crazy. There's no money to be made. I mean, it's like you, 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 you pretty much, you're lucky if you can break even on 500 boxes of anything particularly when you do something unique. And that's the reason why most aren't. Most are really just some sort of retread. Right. I, um... Oh, is it already? Oh, yeah. The time time just goes so fast. Yeah. Sorry, Nicole, so Nicole has to remind me a lot of times where we are at the time because I just, I won't watch because I'll just be engaged in the show and, and the guests and the conversation. And it's already, we're already, it's already 717. I know you're going to have to wrap soon. Uh, so I, I have to, I have to be uh, cautious of time. We have one, we well, have one, we have, we have about another half hour. Okay. Well, we got one, we got one fun segment that I'm going to do probably after I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to touch on something first and then we'll end the show with that. Um, so, you know, we're talking about current what's going on right now, other than, you know, I know you're doing U-Boat tonight. We saw you at the trade shows, both TPE and PCA this year. Um, you know, PCA obviously being the more recent one, you know, we saw you, you're bringing out the holiday blend in the Stillwell. the Stillwell being a new project that you started last year uh obviously you know you spoke in the saka Khan, the make you read a black that we we talked about a little bit before um Stillwell star really quickly on that one um for those who don't know about it 
and then we'll kind of I'll kind of go from there. Just what led to that project? Like I for those who don't know, it's it's a cigar you did. You used a lot of pipe tobaccos in the filler. Um, but what what really led to that? Well, I've always been a closet pipe smoker. Um, you know, when I was younger, I couldn't afford to smoke as many handmade cigars because they cost a lot. You could smoke a pipe much cheaper. And so in my younger years, I smoked a lot of pipe. And then as I started working in factories, I would occasionally make pipe tobacco cigars where I would just take some of my favorite pipe tobaccos and just add them to an existing blend. So it was something that I had always done for myself. And, you know, we came into the COVID year and 20 what was that 2020 and i had become friends with uh, jeremy reeves he turned out to be a fan of my cigars he's the master blender of pipe tobaccos for them and i then told him that i was a real fan of his and we just started having a conversation and i said hey jeremy i make these pipe tobacco cigars casually and some of them i use some of your tobaccos in let me send you some to try and that's really kind of what started it and because i couldn't travel to nika until the very end of 2020. In fact, I think actually my first trip back to Nico was January 2021. Um, I was able to go to South Carolina and spend some time with him at his pipe tobacco factory. Uh, that's kind of where the project started. For me, it's, it's different. And look, one of the things that you always have to worry about when you're launching a new brand is you don't want to compete with yourself. And when you make something like Stillwell Star, it's just such a different product that it doesn't take away from me, Rita sales or Brulee sales or Sin Compromiso sales. It's really a, it's a much different customer that's probably going to like those. Now there's some overlap. I have guys that smoke Mickey Rita and they also smoke, you know, Stillwell stars, but for the most part, it's a different consumer. So for me as a company, it's a really appealing product because it's unique and it's different. And it gave me a chance to do something that I don't normally get to do. And surprisingly, you know, when you look online, it's a brand that doesn't seem like it's doing all that well from a social media perspective. I mean, I see photos of it, but not as much as like some of my other brands, right? You don't see okay. as many people posting about Stillwell Star as you do my other stuff. Right. But the reality is Stillwell Star is actually, it's right there as either my number one or number two selling brand this year. Really? And it's doing incredibly well. Yeah. yeah. It really is. There's a, again, different consumer right yeah you kind of created a whole new category there um in a sense like you said you know you, you don't want to go into competition you have to look at your competition with that one you kind of kind of created a whole new lane there and you know that's you know one of the reasons why you know we we did our awards for 2021 you know you were actually the recipient of the uh the most innovation uh award Thank that you. we that we gave out um which we gave to you at the, you the trade show. Frame it. <laughs> somewhere, it's somewhere to be framed. I think <laughs> Abe's the only one that framed his award. <laughs> no, I'm frame. I frame all those. Look, you're, you're always appreciated to be acknowledged. I mean, so yeah. But no, I mean, I I wanted to touch on that because that's that's definitely not just a new line, but it's a, it's a very new as a whole category. Um, and well, it's I, not, that, not that I invented the wheel. I mean, there've been pipe tobacco cigars in the marketplace before. It's just no one's ever done it with that level of attention to detail. Yes. No, and they're always thinking about who's going to smoke this. And, th and this is one of the things I think. So when I was at Drew State, we had a ton of people try to compete with us on acid, right? Yeah. And the thing that they never really understood 
about the acid smoker. Look, I'm not an acid guy. I find it disgusting to smoke. It's not in my palate. Okay. Okay. But there's a consumer that absolutely loves that. They love that flavor. They love that smell. So we never treated that consumer as though they were a redheaded stepchild. We never treated that customer as though they were a lesser customer. If they were willing to spend seven to $10 for a handmade cigar, they deserved a cigar that was worthy of 10, seven to $10, just as any of the other legacy mainstay brands that were in the marketplace. And, and that's the thing that separated us and why Drew Estate became so big is because everyone else that kept, I mean, look, STG, well, Time General, that Helix Remix, and there was a ton of companies that were making infused flavor, whatever you want to call it, but they always did it on the cheap. They always thought, oh, it doesn't matter. This tastes cherry. These guys don't know any better. And then we make it out of the cheapest materials. And it just, you know, it just wouldn't smoke well. It wouldn't be a good experience. And I think that's the same thing in the pipe tobacco segment. There have been pipe tobacco cigars in the past, but nobody ever said, hey, let me make top shelf. Let me use all the best of the best, you know, not just the best, you know, pipe tobacco, but just even the best cigar tobaccos. Let me put it on quality pairs. And look, in Stillwell Stars, they're they're a $15 cigar. I mean, it's uh, look, that pipe tobacco isn't cheap. It runs about 80 bucks a pound for the high end stuff. Uh, yeah, about 80. Some of it's higher than that. You know what I mean? So it's really, really costly to do the project, to do it right. Now, can you buy Lane Limited 1Q bulk and you can get that stuff for like four bucks a pound? Sure. Well, four bucks a pound is too cheap. You can't get it for four bucks a pound. But you get a sub 10, right? Uh, it's not the same. Right. It just isn't. And, and, you know, and for that consumer that can appreciate the difference and they're willing to spend the money, well, why don't you give them something that's worthy for them to spend their money on? And I think that's the big difference is so many people on my side of the business just assume those customers aren't worth it, that they won't know the difference. They won't care. You know, and, and look, in the end, we all care. We may not be cigar experts, but we all know what we enjoy and what we don't enjoy, right? We know the difference. And look, yeah, is there always going to be a Bud Light guy? There's always going to be a Bud Light guy, but he's never going to be my customer. He's going to be buying his cheap bundles from whatever website and getting whatever he's getting. So that guy I can't even touch. But for the guys that guys and girls that can tell the difference and are willing, you can make a product for them. And, and that's always been my approach to things. I just, uh, I just, I don't try to appeal to everybody. I don't worry about, I don't worry about the volume as much as I worry about satisfying the customer that is my customer. And for me, my customer is me. So if I'm unwilling to buy it and I'm unwilling to smoke it. Why would I ask someone else to do the same? Yeah, no, very, very well said. One of the things about Stillwell that has kind of been talked about a little bit uh, that I, I, I wanted to get your opinion on is, you know, we talk a lot about flavored cigars and a few cigars, and you mentioned acid and kind of a little comparison there. Would you would you classify? I mean, when it really comes down to it, Stillwell yeah, is a flavored uh, I cigar. Would, I would classify, I would classify the aromatic number one as being sort of, sort of not. It's weird. Because it's pipe tobacco that's been cased in the aromatic number one. So there's definitely some flavor that is being added to that 
to those three grams of pipe tobacco. It's not the same as most of the flavor products in the marketplace. But yeah, to be literal, I think an aromatic number one, it could fall into that category. Now, legally, it gets really fuzzy because of just the way all these individual states are treating these products. Um, it's hard to really tell one way or the other. Uh, so, look, dude, Bush Light is not the same. Bush <laughs> Light's a much better Bush Light. Let's be clear about that. But, uh, I, I like Miller Light, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a beer job here, but Bud Light's pissed. <laughs> but, the, uh, but, yeah, so, I mean, it, but the other ones, the English, no. Um, the the Bayou, no way whatsoever. The Navy, the Navy's a little fuzzier because the Navy has rum, but the rum never comes in contact with the tobacco. The rum goes in the water in the cavendishing table, and it's used to steam that tobacco while you're cavendishing it, but all the alcohol gets burned off in the process. So is it, is it not? I don't know. And, and then the other thing too is, I think something that most consumers aren't aware of is there are many legacy mainstay brands that they've been averaging, having some, some sort of flavoring to the fermenting process for many, many decades. Okay. It's, it's called patooning, uh, patooning, bethooning. Those two terms are interchangeable. This is not something new. In fact, if you read some of the old write-ups from the, even the, as early as the late 1600s, they were always talking about this process of using alcohol during the fermentation, using wine, uh, using juniper, using coriander. This, this is not a new invent, invention. It's kind of a question of, can you taste it? Is it a distinguishing flavor? Is it characterizing? I think in the case of aromatic number one, it is. I think in the case of this year's holiday, still well. Um, it's definitely, but is it chocolate? Is it cherry? Is it raspberry? It's none of those things, right? Which then it even gets a little fuzzier from a, a regulatory point of view. Um, and that's one of the reasons why for me, I, I, I don't classify it as a flavored product, but I don't not classify it either. Right? I'm going to leave that up to the federal government, but the only one there could be a question on is the aromatics. Because aromatic pipe tobaccos are cased. They've always been cased. That's what aromatic pipe tobacco is. And it also happens to be the most popular of all the pipe tobaccos. Now, for the hardcore pipe guys, some of them will stick their noses in the air, right? Um, you know, but, uh, you know, they, they tend to be more towards the vapors and the English styles and the Scottish and the Balkans and all of those things. But the vast majority of pipe tobacco that is smoked is an aromatic case style of tobacco. Now, when it comes to aromatic tobaccos, even in the pipe, I tend to prefer the softer ones, right? Ones that aren't so goopy and so, you know, sugary and all of that. So like, like if there'll be an aromatic pipe tobacco that I really like, I will buy it and I will cut it with some of my favorite mild English blends, right? Where I'll be literally like four fifths of the traditional English and then it'll be a sprinkling of the aromatic just to add a little bit of that in there. And I, and I think that's kind of the way the aromatic is now. It, it doesn't smoke the same way as a deadwood or as an acid or any of the other flavored cigars on the market. It's a much more subtle kind of expression, which can be good or bad. It could be too much of an expression for the people that don't like that, too little of an expression for the people that do like that. You know, so, you know, it's, it's a catch-22. 
Yeah, it, it's it's something that you know I I've had conversations with other people you know and obviously most people by now know about you know the threats of the flavor ban and all that and it's like well where does Stillwell kind of fall into that category you know does it technically fall in there does it not you know if if it doesn't and and a, and a flavor ban does go into effect you know does it does it get pulled in or does it become the if ultimately it's determined that it's going to be bad, I will stop making it. It's just that simple. Hmm. It's not like the company's not living or dying by Stillwell Star Aromatic Number One. Much different situation when you're Swisher and acid is your biggest seller. You 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 have to die on that hill. That's a fight you have to have. Right. Okay. Um, and look, we were having that fight long before FDA. I mean, Maine had a flavor ban. And we ended up submitting acid to, they had a panel of tasters that were sanctioned by the state of Maine to determine whether a product was considered flavored, had a characterizing flavor or not. And we submitted acid. And even in the end of them doing it, they decided that they didn't count it because they couldn't identify what, they knew it tasted different, but it didn't taste cherry to them. It didn't taste vanilla to them. It didn't taste cotton candy to them. You know what I mean? It wasn't great. So even that independent board in the state of Maine decided that acid was not a flavored cigar as far as they were concerned. Hmm. Uh, this is all in the air. Who knows where it's going to go? I mean, yeah, I know. Time will tell. It's uh, it's the way she goes, I guess. Um, I want to hit. I want to hit our last segment before we get too too close to the end here. Um, our top three segment once again brought to you by Room One Hundred and One. Watch the smoking tobacco show. Eat your vegetables. Take your vitamins. Smoke room 101. <laughs> I couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I didn't. <laughs> I let Matt say it. <laughs> Luthi does a great job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You never know what you're going to get with him. <laughs> uh, our top three. This week, uh, Steve, I know you. You know you travel a lot to to Nicaragua and you know, South America, and obviously for mostly for work purposes, right? Um, Only for work. But you know, you you just you you just uh, you just came back from your trip in Europe, and you mentioned that you know you hadn't been on a, a true vacation in a while. But you know, when you do travel and you do want to take some time away, you and the misses. Yes. Where are the three places in the world that you like to go to, to get away from all of the cigar nonsense and just kind of be Steve? There's only one place I like to go. Really? It's called Away. I like to go where there's nobody. Okay. So oddly enough, the Switzerland thing wasn't quite that, but it kind of was because you know, we rented a place that was a little very private. You know, it was just Sydney and I, even though obviously we see people every day, but I, I'm always the guy that's like, hey, I want the, I want the private place and a private. You know, I, I just want quiet. So for me, we tend to go more mountains um, than we do go beach. Uh, neither Sydney or myself are really beach people. Uh, we both, uh, we both tend to prefer cooler, higher climates. So there's there's more mountain than there is beach. But it doesn't mean look. Uh, the last real vacation I took was like three years ago and we went to St. John's for a week over the Christmas holiday. Uh, so that, that was cool. But again, we had a, we had a private villa. It was just her and I, I, I don't need, I don't want the resort experience. Right. At all. You know, to me, 
going to Disney World would be like I'd rather eat a gun. Okay, that's like that's a job to go to something like that. To go on a a Viking river cruise is just like misery to me. I can't even I can't even imagine that. I I'm like I just what's cool, you go to Switzerland, we rent a car, we decide where we're gonna go every day on our own, we do our own thing. And yeah, we probably miss out on a lot of great stuff, but that's okay. Cause I, I just I just need I just need some quiet. Yeah. I mean, a vacation is is whatever it is to you. It, it, there's no rule. You don't have to do something. It's whatever whatever makes you feel like you took a break, you stepped away, got away. For you, you just want the quiet. I get it. It's actually pretty nice, to be honest with you, especially nowadays. I feel like there's just there's too many people. Like we go to the trade shows in Vegas. Um, That's you know, nothing but work. And it's That's just and it's like outside of the actual trade show. It's like when you when you're walking around like those resorts. You're right. It's just it's just people wall to wall. It's yeah. like what kind of kind of enjoyment is that? I mean, the best one of the best times we had was we went down to the Great Smoke. We didn't even stay at a hotel. We, we just rented an Airbnb out of the way, just a quiet neighborhood and a house. Us and the How About That Cigar guys. It was great. Right. It was great. Just being away from everyone. You could just come home at the end of the night and just felt like you were at home. Just be away. Except we were in Florida and it was cold up here at the time, so. It was really nice, um, but yeah, no, that's uh, no, that's an interesting answer. Another question I had for you, just another random, uh, just get your mind off cigar stuff. If you could have lived in another decade that you either weren't alive for, or maybe you were too young for, you know, like as an adult, you could really experience it. What decade would that be? I think the fifties, right? Yeah, I mean, hmm. the fifties were just full of promise and invention, and it was a time of relative peace i mean it's 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 hard not to be enamored with the 50s um i, I think that would that, i think that would be a, a time era where I, I would have enjoyed it i mean i mean it, it's easy to romanticize about you know the you know the 19th century but i think i'd be miserable i think uh yeah too much work too spoiled too many conveniences that i wouldn't want to give up yeah. So I think the fifties would be like the right cutting point for me. Yeah. Fifties, early sixties. Yeah. Pre Vietnam War, right? That period between World War Two and the Vietnam War. That's where I, that's that would be a place I'd like to experience. Well, you had career in there too. Yeah, but Korea wasn't as impactful, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously it was for the people that went to Korea, hugely impactful, but yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, we have a question from oh, from Chris Duke. Ask Steve, what was your favorite moment during your recent European trip not cigar-related? Well, I actually didn't have any cigar-related stuff when I was in Switzerland, so it was pretty much no cigars. Um, so I think my favorite part was the time I sat on, on that. You know, I rent a, kind of a chalet apartment scenario. And it had a beautiful deck that was overlooking. You could see the, the I don't want to call them foothills because they're mountains. The foothills of the Alps. Just, you know, it was to just be there. And I drank more wine on this trip than I probably drank in an entire two-year period. It was like every yeah. night I went through at least a bottle, if not two bottles of wine. Hmm. Um, and it was, it was nice. It was realistic. Hmm. Well, that's nice. That sounds yeah. nice. Yeah, maybe maybe next year we'll, we'll we'll go out to there. I don't know, Nicole. So Nicole, for those who don't know, Nicole spent a, a large portion of her childhood growing up in England. So for me, 
Uh, and I haven't been to Europe. So for me, my first European trip is I, I want to go to to England and uh, and see London and, and go to Ireland. And her family's Irish and from Ireland. And her mother was born in Ireland. And I want to see Dublin. Yeah, I've never been to Ireland. I've, I've been most places in, Europe, in the UK, in England. And I've been all over Scotland, which is amazing. But we've never made it to Ireland. But Ireland would be... Ireland would be up City in my alley. Hmm. Ireland, Iceland, like next year, Sydney and I have already decided um, either before Inner Tobac or after Inner Tobac, we're going to go to Norway. Oh, nice. We've never been to Norway before, you know, so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to attack on a week. Cause look, I don't know what the plane prices are going to be next year, but this year they were crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was absurd how much the plane tickets cost. And no offense to my friends in Germany, but Dortmund really does suck. I think most Germans would agree that that part of Germany, the pretty Germany, that's the industrial kind of sprawlish. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not, it's not where you go in Germany for vacation. I can say that. It's not glamorous, so to speak. It's um, not glamorous. No, it, it, and again, man, how do I say something and not get in trouble? <laughs> but isn't that part of what makes you who you are? You say things that get you in trouble. I'm going to Dortmund would be kind of like saying I'm going to Akron, Ohio. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm going to go to Akron, Ohio. You know what I mean? That's where. It's like that's why? what Dortmund is. <laughs> right. Look, there aren't great people in Akron, but it's not where you choose on a map to say, "Hey, I'm going to Akron." You know? <laughs> yeah, no, I it, that's that's a great that's a great example, and that's what I've been told about going to Dortmund. Someone had told me recently, like, "Yeah, you should go to Inner Tobacco," but I'll tell you. Outside of that, it, there's, there's really not much going on out there in Dortmund. It's it's really not glamorous. Um, yeah, it's expensive. It's not like there's amazing restaurants. There's nothing to see. It's just uh, you're there for the international trade show, and it's it's a much different trade show. It's uh, it's not really a selling show. It's more uh, talk to distributors and talk to international retailers. You don't tend to write very many orders at the trade show. Because the way the business is done internationally is so significantly different. You know, you're basically talking about the cigars you're going to sell next year to that distributor, you know, and they're buying in much larger quantities because they're spending the product because they're the ones that then go and sell to the individual retailers in their country. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm, I'm looking at the time here and it's 7:40, and I know you got to go soon, so I want to uh, I want to try to wrap this up soon but before i do it is first of all i want to say steve thank you for being here tonight thanks for giving us the time um it was, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show with us we really appreciate it um really i really think nicole shouldn't talk so much she sucks up so much of the time uh, she 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 is very, she is very shy she she's on the shire she does all the the behind the scenes stuff on the computer for me so that i don't have to think about it but she 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 is a little shy i know <laughs> I'm getting better. <laughs> I just absorb. I'm here for. I don't know. Well, hopefully, you know, for the next for the next trade shows for next year, you know, we we're gonna be bringing more people to the shows to get even more coverage. And I think Nicole's gonna have to start doing some interviews on her own. So I think that'll really help her get out of her shell moving forward, which will be cool. So, so you guys will go to TPE again this year. Yes, yep. we will be there with two teams. So well. Two pairs, yeah. yeah. Yep. There'll be four of us in attendance. Oh, even at TPE, you find that's necessary there. Um, after our first run, we do. We're gonna see how it goes this year. Um, 
Also, I mean, to be fair, last year was our first run through at TPE, so, but I, I think we're going to try it this year. PCA, 100%, 100%. I mean, yeah, PCA is much harder to cover, though. There's oh, yeah. tons of new product releases. There's so many more booths. It's so spread out. I mean, TPE, you can walk the whole cigar section in what, an hour and a half? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a couple hours at the most. It's not the same. So, yeah. Well, one of the people that will be with us is already is already there, so he doesn't really have to travel, so that makes it easier. So only three of us will be traveling, so um, that'll be cool. Uh, other than that, it's uh, I think the TP this year is going to be a trial run, but then you know maybe we'll we'll see. But you know, for after last year, I was like, yeah, we should maybe bring a couple more people next year. It, it just kind of helps break it up. Um, it's not just the videos; it's going back and getting some other stuff and photos and just you know the general. We try to we try yeah. to get everybody. I don't think that the people that watch the coverage or read the articles have any idea how much time it takes to do all of the post on all of this stuff. It's really, oh yeah, it's horrendous. And I, I look, I used to, I used to run a website called Cigar Nexus, and I, I would kill myself at the at the trade show. I mean, literally, I'd be lucky if I got two hours of sleep a night. Oh yeah, it was, it was rough. Coop doesn't even sleep, you know. He stays up. Yeah. <laughs> well, Steve, I, I know I know we're running out of time. I, I once again, I just want to thank you for being here, and, and I appreciate it. And um, you know, I, we'd love to have oh, you no, back. Thank you. Anytime. Just, just ask. We can talk about anything. Yeah, absolutely. Next time we'll we'll get into we'll get into more saucy stuff, um, and we'll we'll see where that leads. But other than that, Steve, I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much, guys. Don't forget to watch. Uh, later on our youtube channel don't forget to like and subscribe on our youtube channel and everywhere you can find your podcast and as always visit smokingtobacco.com for more news and updates from the cigar industry and we'll be back with you on saturday night once again i know sorry last week i said we were going to do spare notes but i forgot that coop had a had a procedure done and he just wasn't really wasn't up for doing a show and smoking so i i did uh, i did forget about that but we will be back this saturday night to talk about all of the hot things that have been happening if you're following the news, you probably know we'll be there. Same place, same time, as always, 9 p.m. Eastern. And with that, we'll see you guys next week. Take care. Bye. Thank you for spending your time with us at Smokin' Tobacco. Please remember to like and subscribe for more episodes and content. And as always, visit SmokinTobacco.com for news and updates from the cigar industry.